Welcome in everybody to another episode of the How Not to Be a Youth Pastor podcast hosted by your two favorite people in the entire world probably, Kyle and Derek, talking every single day about how not to be youth pastors. Derek, how are you doing today? I am great. I have been sick in the last couple of weeks and so uh you didn't want to spend time with me, and I can kind of understand why. I claimed it was because you were sick. <laughs> that's, a, that's a logical excuse. I uh, I right. appreciate that effort, but I'm on the mend, and I feel like a million bucks. Oh, that's I saw something on social media the other day where it was talking about how like basically this guy was like, take a moment, pause reading this, and and ask yourself, do I have a runny nose? Because when you have a runny nose, you like it's almost impossible to comprehend what life was like without a, like when your nose is just normal. Yep. But when your nose is normal, you don't really think about it. You don't. You just kind of take it for granted. And so his point was kind of like just like take a moment if you don't have a stuffy nose, don't have a runny nose, like just appreciate it for a moment. <laughs> and I thought it was hilarious. I thought you were going somewhere with like one of those memes where it's like when you, if asking that question, you naturally like sniffle or like try to like, oh, yeah. you know, suck it up or like it's, some people do it where it's like, you know, as you're reading the sentence, I, or as you're reading this sentence, I bet you didn't even realize there's a number six, you know, mm-hmm. to start the line. Then you go over there and then the next line is, I bet I made you look towards it. You know, the, yep. one of those types yep. of things. I thought that's where you were going Classic. with that. No, we're not that tricky. Uh, we're youth pastors. Our, all of our tricks and pranks are pretty simple. That's fair. Uh, that's not true at all. We go way overboard. You go way overboard, <laughs> Mr. Prankster. That's true. Uh, quick question of the day today, Derek. What was uh, we're, we're entering? Actually, it's December. We're full blown into Christmas season. What's the best Christmas present you've ever received? We were talking before the show, and my initial response to this was a PlayStation 2. I remember getting that when I was like... Gosh, this might be one of my research team questions when PS2 came out, but I had to have been like eight or nine when it came out. And I remember how pumped I was when I got it. But then I realized I probably should have said something that my wife gave me. So, um, my if wife it helps. I was not going to say something my wife gave me. <laughs> they don't listen to us anymore. It's all right. They, That's true. They used to out of obligation. Now they no longer see that need. But, no, in all honesty, my wife did get me. It was a really sweet gift. Um, it was it was a watch made entirely of wood, um, mm. and like not like bulky, obtuse wood, but like fine tuned, like handcrafted a wood watch made out of all wood. It was really really sweet. So that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, now that I said that, I will say I'm I'm a big Norland Saints fan, and my wife got me a Drew Brees jersey one year. Uh, actually, that might have been for my birthday, uh, not for Christmas, but that's not important. Uh, I remember when I was young, uh, my parents got all of like me and my siblings, they got us a ping pong table. Let me tell you, that was, I, I remember that, that Christmas morning, uh, and there was like a blanket or something over the stairs to go down. So like we couldn't go down there and we were like, what the heck? <laughs> Uh, and we just like, but then like we just had Christmas as normal and they're like, Hey, we got one last present for you guys. And, uh, went downstairs and there's a ping pong table. And so we were freaking out and then playing that the rest of the day. That was pretty fun. How much use did that thing get over in its lifetime? A lot. Plenty. Do you still Um, have it? Uh, no, my parents moved. Uh, and, uh, the ping pong table didn't come with, it takes up a lot of space. Oh yeah. You have to have a big area uh, for that in your house, but, uh, it, you know, lots of, lots of games or, uh, you know, playing around the world, uh, uh, just different things with the ping pong table over the years. That was a lot of around the world. Remember, remind me how you play that. So that's the one where like you can have as many people as you want all lined up around the ping pong table and you have two paddles, one on each side. Oh yeah. And then like I hit it to you. And then I put the paddle down and I move to my left and the next person in line comes in, picks the paddle up yep. and they have to hit the next shot on that side. And so as you get fewer and fewer people, you're, you're like running, running around the ping pong table, uh, you know, trying to, cause I got a hit on this side, but yep. then I have to move to my left and you know, get to the other there's side. only maybe one or two people before me till yep. I have to hit on the other side. 
So it's a it's a fun game, fun fun you know group party game. I love it. But uh, anyways, we're not here to talk about ping pong. Uh, we're here to ruin everyone's childhood. Uh, so How is that different than any other episode? <laughs> That's true. Uh, we do ruin childhoods a lot. This is going to be. I'm. I am so so excited for this episode. It's going to be probably one of the more. Uh, theological episodes we've ever done. Uh, one of the deepest Bible dives we've ever done on an episode. Uh, so the background to this episode is that when I was in college, uh, I got the opportunity to spend about three and a half weeks studying in Israel. And it was a really, really cool experience because of how intentional our professor was. Uh, he would like, we'd get up in the morning and there was probably like 90 of us uh, that were all in this group. And we'd get up in the morning, you know, load up on these buses and we'd drive to the middle of nowhere. Uh, and then th- our professor would lecture uh, in that spot. And so one, of, for example, there was one time we, we got up and, and Derek had, you know, Derek spent some time in Israel as well. And so I, you know, he had a couple similar experiences, but we had one where, we got up on the bu- on the in the morning, got on the buses, and we went to like basically kind of in the middle of this like prairie slash woods yep. thing, and it was and there was like this creek running through the middle, and I was like, okay, what the heck are we doing here? Uh, and our professor pre- proceeded to preach and and teach on Jesus's baptism and how you know there's a spot in between. If you're familiar with the geography of Israel, if you're not, find a map. Because uh, it's really interesting. In between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, on the south side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, there's a there's a portion of the Jordan River where people can go and and get baptized where Jesus got baptized. It's like a tourist spot, yep. basically. Mm-hmm. And so he, our professor, taught like, okay, here's where this spot is that all the tourists go to get baptized in the Jordan River where Jesus did. Uh, let's study scripture and study the culture to figure out that that's an absolutely terrible place for people. Like there's no way Jesus got baptized anywhere near that spot Mm -hmm. uh, because of X, Y, and Z in the Bible. And now let's study what actually, you know, the culture was and where Jesus probably actually did get baptized, which just happens to be this spot that we are in right now. Exactly. Uh, You know, so it was, you know, experiences like that. It was super, super cool. Uh, Mark Turnage uh, was the name of the, uh, the guy that, was kind of our professor, our teacher while we were there. Uh, he it was an incredible resource. Uh, he has a uh, a podcast and a book called Windows Into the Bible, which I would highly recommend. Um, but today on this episode, we are going to take some of his teachings and some of the things that that he taught my group when I was in Israel and and kind of go over the Christmas story uh, because everybody has seen countless children's plays where they recount the Christmas story, right? You know, you got all the, all the kids dressed up in costumes yep. and have you seen the one of like where the kids retell the Christmas story and the, oh, and the adults like act it out? So hilarious. Good. And you got, you know, you always have like the kid that is picking their nose yep. or uh-huh. they're waving to mom and dad or they just wander off or starts taking his shirt off. Yep. And, you know, just like, Oh, it's hilarious. If your church does not do some sort of kids play every Christmas, like you should just do it because it's cute and hilarious. Uh, but they're all wrong. And and so today, Derek and I, uh, with the assistance from good friend of the show, Mark Turnage, uh, we're going to dive in to what that story actually looked like versus yeah. how it's portrayed a lot of times. Well, I think something that stuck out to me especially, and I'm sure it's something you can have this uh, experience as well, Kyle, when you're in Israel, it's amazing how... Um, you know, when you are just reading the Bible, um, we can talk, we've talked about translations before and the errancy of them and what have you, but the, the cultural cues that the writers of scripture just assume, um, the readers know, um, is unbelievable. I mean, it's amazing how, when you are actually walking in Israel and you're sitting there with a professor who has spent more time than you and I have been alive studying this stuff you just realize how much you don't know and yeah. how many subtle yet insanely significant things 
you just miss without knowing the actual context. And so as we'll find out today, um, you know, the, the main stuff is still the main stuff. Jesus is still Messiah, savior of the world. It's not like you're missing out on these massive details, but uh, it just kind of goes and proves to the fact that um, you can study scripture for your entire life and still uncover new truths and the Holy Spirit can reveal new things to you. Um, and I think that it also just gives credence to the fact that there is value to studying and actually doing some like really, really in-depth study about some like big things. So, you know, I, I, I love getting nerdy about this stuff because there's a lot of just truths, just really in the thick of the details of cultural cues that get missed unless you don't know them. Yeah. I would highly recommend our listeners, uh, you know, diving deeper into just the cultural context of the Bible. Um, you know, a lot of times that starts with, uh, understanding the Greek and Hebrew original words, right? Uh, you know, going beyond just the English words and, and don't hear what I'm not saying. Like you have to go and be fluent in ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek. Like that's not, <laughs> we got resources out there that have already done that and have mm-hmm. already done the resources or done the research. Just go look at them. Right. Uh, and it's, uh, it's phenomenal, phenomenal work. Uh, you know, the land of the Bible, uh, even one of the simplest ones is like whenever somebody in the Bible says they're going to go to Jerusalem, they always say that they're going to go up to Jerusalem or I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem. He went up to Jerusalem. And in our minds, we think, okay, well, he was south of Jerusalem right. and he went up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is north. Because we think about, you know, a picture yeah. of a map. Yep. Uh, but really it's just elevation. Correct. Like Jerusalem was higher in elevation. You had to go up a mountain and then, or up, up a hill, up whatever, and then come down to, uh, you know, come down the embankment into the city. You'd go up and then down into the city, stuff like that. Yeah. Picking up on that is, uh, is just super, super interesting. Before we dive into something super, super in depth, you know, it's one of those things <laughs> When as we're thinking about Israel, I just had to share a story with you, Cal, that might, you know, make you and our listeners laugh. So as you're gonna recall, I mean, these are long days we had in Israel. You're on the bus by 6 30, 7 a.m. and you're going all day long until dinner time. And it's intensive, it's long, it's super, super crazy. And so, you know, we are on probably day four or five of our entire experience here. And um my my buddy Jake and I like, it was a good thing to like go on this trip with your best friend in the world. Like it was super, super enjoyable that way. Uh, but at the same time we were prone to getting sidetracked and doing dumb things and not paying attention to the very important people who were saying things. And so as a result of all of this, we're kind of, you know, in the middle of the trip. So it's been a lot of stuff. Your mind naturally wanders a little bit more than normal. And so we get all done uh, with our day out touring. And while we were out on one of the sites, there was these little kind of rodents running around. And um, basically they had the, the street name in Israel known as rock rabbits. And so um, what happened is we got all to the end of the day and our professors were checking in with us and had us pull out our notebooks to, to just kind of like break down what we learned and what stuck out to us. And after an entire day of touring, you know, we, I had filled up multiple, multiple pages of notes and everything else. At the very end of the day, my buddy Jake pulls out his notebook and the only thing written on his notebook from the entire day of tours is rock rabbits. It's literally <laughs> the only thing he wrote down all day long. It had no relevance to anything other than the fact that it was just the street name for these little rodents running around and it was... It was hilarious when he opened up his notebook and that's all he had written down. Of everything that he supposedly learned. I hope that's like to this day, the one thing he took away from it. <laughs> we talk about rock rabbits all the time. <laughs> that is so, so good. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so here we go. Uh, one of the things too, uh, you know, I, I do feel like I need to warn all of our listeners because uh, most of our listeners come to this show to hear Derek because... Uh, he's got that sweet Mike McDaniel's voice 
And uh, I don't get just- that, by the way. <laughs> when you, when Pastor Rick said that, the more I listened to Mike McDaniel, I'm like, I feel insulted that that was the comparison because he's I kind of a clown. I, first of all, love the guy. I oh, think yeah. he's hilarious. 100%. Uh, but no, I, so yeah. Our senior pastor here once said that Derek sounds like uh, current Miami Dolphins head coach, Mike McDaniel. Uh, I'm not sure that I hear it either, but I think it's funny. (laughs) Uh, But uh, this was so this was um, a a lot of what we're talking about with this episode came from a portion of the Israel trip I went on that Derek did not get. Uh, He went a different year than I did and his trip. I don't know why. My, my trip was like three and a half weeks. Right. It was pretty long. Yours, I think, was closer to two. two and a half. Yeah. And so there was, you know, some days that that I had and you didn't. And I will fully admit, like, there were some days I was like, yeah, we probably could have cut this out. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't have meant that. Like, it was all incredible, but some of it I was like, oh, okay. Well, and entirely different teams of professors, too. Like the, That's the, true. The, the, and that's probably the biggest difference. The whole trip was just different. It just, it was. Mm. So. But I would, I would, here's the deal. I have two recommendations for all our listeners, and then we'll dive into this. Recommendation number one, if you ever get the opportunity, go to Israel. Yep. And if you need to create that opportunity... Uh, because it's incredible and it's different to study it when you're actually there. Uh, and then second recommendation, uh, Mark Turnage, like they, he still leads tours and I would highly, highly, I believe his company is called biblical expeditions. Uh, they are incredible and I'd highly recommend, uh, going with Mark. I don't know if I ever go back and I'd love to, I don't know that I would trust anybody else to lead my team. Uh, than him, not like from a safety standpoint, right. uh, but just, you know, the credibility of the information. Yep. Uh, okay. So the story of the, uh, of the Christmas story, the story of Jesus's birth, there's a lot of it that, uh, gets put into, you know, Christmas pageants or whatever that is not a hundred percent accurate. And the one that I always love to start off with because it gets a complete shock face from any of all the middle schoolers that I tell this to. They're like, what? Are, are you kidding me? My entire world is ruined. Um, there is no innkeeper uh, in the entire, if it like open up your Bible and find me the innkeeper in your Bible. Uh, there, there is no actual person that, you know, it always says, oh, the innkeeper opens the door when they knocked and Mary and Joseph knocking the door, innkeeper opens it and says, oh, there's no room in the inn. There was no innkeeper anywhere in this. So that's, that's the one that is maybe the most egregious, uh, example. Do you know what's funny about this? I went and checked for myself after I saw your show. <laughs> Cause like, I knew you weren't just blowing smoke, but I was like, there's gotta be an innkeeper and sure <laughs> there's enough, gotta be there somewhere. Yeah. Sure enough. So the second one kind of goes along with this because there is no innkeeper. But the other one that you have to dig a little bit deeper for is that there is no inn. Uh, you know, there's the the text when Luke is, uh, is talking about uh, Mary and Joseph, they get to Bethlehem. And the way, the phrase that is always in our minds is there is no room for them in the inn. Uh, you know, the actual Greek word that is used, a better translation is upper room. Uh, it's actually the same Greek word that Luke uses when he talks about the upper room where, uh, Jesus and his disciples met for the last supper. Mm. And you could make the argument like, like, okay, like, it can loosely like guest room is also sure. a great way to translate that word. Well, you know, yes, but and and that could that kind of loosely ties to the word in or motel or hotel as we would, you know, understand it. The problem in translating this Greek word that Luke uses as in is that later in Luke's gospel he recounts a parable Jesus tells about the good Samaritan. Yep. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus describes, uh, or, or he tells at the end, like, you know, the, the Good Samaritan takes the man to the inn and, you know, pays for him to stay there, pays the man to take care of his wounds. And he says, the next time I come back around, if the expenses exceed what I give you here, uh, I'll settle the debt and I'll yep. pay the difference. Uh, 
clearly he's actually talking about a hotel yep. style place. Mm-hmm. And Luke uses a different word, the actual Greek word for hotel, yep. he uses there. So clearly Luke knew what that word was and intentionally did not use it here. Uh, and so, you know, that kind of leads into the question, okay, but what didn't Mary and Joseph have to find a place for the baby to be born? They're they're living somewhere else. They got to travel to Bethlehem. Uh, you know, they got this census that's happening. We've got to find a place for, for Jesus to be born. Uh, I don't know when we got it in our heads that Mary was like nine and a half months pregnant when they traveled to Bethlehem. I'm not sure how that entered all of our narratives, Mm -hmm. but Mary's always depicted as super pregnant riding on this donkey and they're trying to find a hotel room in Bethlehem. Um, Luke chapter two, verse six says it happened that while they were there, the days for her to give birth were fulfilled. Mm. That does not sound like they just showed up, you know, Mary and Joseph rode screaming into Bethlehem on the donkey because her water (laughs) broke two miles back and they needed a place to deliver the baby. Like that's not what Luke says. No, like it happened that while they were there, the days for her to give birth were fulfilled. Like clearly it implies that Mary and Joseph were already in Bethlehem for an undisclosed amount of time before Mary gives birth. So there was not this urgency to find a place to stay. And it just, you know, it just so happened the one night they showed up also back to the whole inn thing. Bethlehem is, was a town of like at most four or 500 people. Most cities with four to 500 people do not have a hotel, but that's beside the point. But they do have a dollar general. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think in America, like you have to have like a post office. Like that's really the only building establishment that you have to have in order to be considered a town. A town. Okay. Uh, don't quote me on that, but I think I remember seeing that. There are some portions of the United States, such as the state of Wisconsin, where you also have to have a bar in order to be considered a town. Um, <laughs> That's fair. Um, you know, it's kind of like, are you really a town in Texas if you don't have barbecue? Right. Probably not. You, you have to have a barbecue establishment in Texas I in feel order like to Walmart be considered a town. Walmart is the Minnesota version. No, Target. No, I know, but like... No, I think Dollar General is because yeah. you, like, you have a town of like... 40 people, you're not going to have a Walmart, but you definitely might have a Dollar General or a Dollar Store or, you know, one of those things, which minor note, I hope like the daughter or son of the Dollar General CEO isn't listening. Uh, I have actually read like a lot of things economically about how those stores are terrible uh, economically long-term for a community, but that's beside the point. Um, So anyways... Uh, so Mary and Joseph were already in Bethlehem for a period. We don't know how long, but a period, well, more than a day, probably more than a day, less than nine months. How's that sound? (laughs) Uh, or less than three months because Mary found out she was pregnant and then went to stay with her cousin Elizabeth for three months. Yep. So less, less than six months and more than a day. Uh, so then the question becomes, okay, where did Mary and Joseph stay? If they were in Bethlehem for, you know, more than one day, they probably had some place they were staying. Uh, you're right. Uh, the first thing here, the first nugget we're going to drop is that Joseph didn't need to get a hotel room because he owned property in Bethlehem. All right. How do we know that? The whole point of Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem was what, Derek? A census. The census from the Roman government to figure out how much to tax people. Yep. They had a change in leadership and the new guy comes in and says, I want to make sure I'm getting all the money I can out of these poor peasant Jewish people. Yep. Solid dude. And well, <laughs> let's, uh, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to agree with you on that, but that's fine. Uh, <laughs> 
And so if I want to figure out how much to tax people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is before the days of W-2s and all of the automated uh, payroll stuff. And so it's very hard to tax people on like things like income. Mm-hmm. But what can I tax them on? Because it's stationary and it's solid their property. I can find out who owns what property and I can use that to decide how much to tax people. So that is why people needed to go to the property they own to register it for the census. So therefore, if Joseph had to go to Bethlehem for the census, it's because he owned property there or potentially because he had you know, like his, his parents owned property there and they had willed it to him or, you know, whatever. But either way, either, either he has property in Bethlehem or his parents have a house in Bethlehem, uh, or potentially both. So Joseph owns property in Bethlehem. Uh, when, so when the Bible translates into English, you know, we get the phrase because there was no place for them in the inn. We've already established that in isn't right in that yep. sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, elsewhere in Jewish literature, that word commonly gets referred to as, you know, like lodging, place to stay, or like guest room uh, or dining room, even. Uh, a better place, like lodging or accommodations, is the best translation sure. for it, though. And so a better translation of because there was no place for them in the end, a better translation would be because they did not have space in their accommodations. Like if the room they were staying in was small enough, it wouldn't fit all of the family that Mary would need to give birth. Again, we're not talking about 21st century medical operations and procedures. Like they needed to move rooms because they needed more space. Yep. We're, we're talking about, you know, had like Mary or Joseph's mom or both. There were midwives that needed to be there and, and other people to help facilitate this birthing process. Uh, it can't be done in a cubicle. Right. All right. So are you with me so far, Derek? Yeah. <laughs> so, I would like to pause and, yeah, and, just, and let's just give credence to the fact. Okay, you're an, you're an expecting dad. Congratulations, I am. By yes, the way. thank you. We got uh, about six weeks. Come on, that's what I'm talking about. Can you? I I love just sitting there and processing this because I remember when I found out, um, my son Ellis was definitely like a oh, okay, we're having a kid, you know, one of those types of experiences. And so there was a part of me that sat there and went, oh, I'm going to be a dad. Oh, here we go. You know, like this kind of a little bit like excitement for sure, but also a healthy amount of what the heck am I going to do here? Can you imagine Joseph, like you're getting ready to be married to your fiance, and all of a sudden you find out she's pregnant. Like mm-hmm. you, you have the understandable. Like, did you cheat on me? That that whole thing. But then when you find out that you're gonna be a dad to the most important person that has ever came into the earth, like that. The can you imagine the pressure of that? Like, I just I loved like. Because like we read this story and it's like we just like oh yeah like Mary just got pregnant out of nowhere and they raised the kid but like that would be a heck of a, of a process of events if you're Joseph and finding out you're a dad uh, to God's son to God's son and and <laughs> a lot of times we read this story like obviously okay the angel appears to Mary and and tells Mary what's up eventually the angel appears to Joseph as well kind of tells him what's up. But yet still, Joseph gets painted as like this completely ignorant yeah. guy. Uh-huh. First of all, like Joseph was so incompetent, he couldn't find lodging for Mary and they had to give birth in a barn. Uh, you know, we're slowly dismantling that. But yeah, it's it's got to be terrifying. Like it's, it's, a, it's a reality check for any man yep. to, you know transition to being a father and, and that, you know, shift in responsibility, but for it to be Joseph and I am, you know, fathering God's son, uh, (laughs) no pressure. Don't screw it up. (laughs) 
The other, the other one I, I've brought this up several times with our youth students is like Mary and Joseph had other kids after Jesus. So (laughs) to, to be Jesus's younger brother and like, right. Like you do something and your parents are like, Oh, why can't you be more like Jesus? Uh You're like, well, he's perfect. So he's literally God. I preached this a month and a half ago. Like you talk about sibling rivalry, like, like when you when you look into scripture, his he had a brother James. Jesus had a brother James, like an actual, yep. you know, whatever half brother, I guess you could say. Yeah, because they don't can. have the same dad. I suppose, <laughs> in theory. So, um, but like James didn't even believe in Jesus. Yeah, like, like yep. he gets saved like yep. much much later so, after like, Jesus's death. Yeah, like he didn't even believe his own brother. So it's just it's an interesting turn of events. But okay, I mean, you make outrageous claims to your siblings all the time growing up. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, well I'm God. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> so good. Oh boy. Okay, yeah. back to I've seen you wet the bed. You're not God. Like, can you imagine? That's hilarious to think about. Anyways, uh, okay, I want to talk a little bit more about this room that they, the, these accommodations that they were staying in. Uh, you know, the, the question that I raised early, okay, Joseph either owns property or uh, he, you know, his parents own property in Bethlehem. So, you know, did Joseph have his own house in Bethlehem? I'm going to go ahead and say probably not. Um, you know, because if he did, he would have built it big enough for his expectant wife is uh, <laughs> is basically my reasoning on that. Uh, however, it was Jewish custom, and this is again going back to Derek and I's conversation earlier about how important it is to be familiar with uh, the culture of the Bible and not just the words of the Bible. Uh, Jewish custom was for the man and the woman to get engaged, which, yes, the woman could refuse that, right? Like it is a genuine proposal, much like yep. a lot of cultures today, like in American culture today. Uh, you know, they would get engaged and then she would remain with her family while the groom to be went and prepared a place for her. Typically it was a quote upper room built onto the roof of his parents' house. Yep. Uh, and then when that room was ready, he would come and get, and, and again, this is like both sides agree to this date the room is ready, he would come get his fiance, they would get married, and they would move into the room that he had prepared for her. Mm -hmm. Now, side note, this brings a whole new life to when Christ says that he is going to prepare a room for us in his father's house. The whole analogy of Christ and his bride being the church, uh, all of that gets a whole new light to it when you understand this piece of Jewish culture. Yeah. Uh, other side note, and I know there are some couples that wish we could bring this back in our culture, uh, in Jewish culture, they would, you know, be engaged. They would get married, move into this house. Mm -hmm. And in the old Testament, the man didn't work or the woman, they, they did not work for a year after their marriage. Come on. And basically just boinked it out (laughs) for a year. (laughs) <laughs> probably should have warned some PG 13 is coming at the beginning of this episode, but that's fine. I love you just stared at me when you said that. And I was waiting for you to have to like hit pause and go back and redo that. But nope, we're leaving it in. Okay. <laughs> oh my word. Okay. In any case, here, here's something I do want to bring up. Okay. Because as you were going along this, do you are you familiar? And I I should have had I known this was going to take this kind of a turn. Um, I would have refreshed myself on this. But the bridegroom, sure. So I recall vaguely that when the couple got married, the best man essentially would be outside the door of the two the two people in question consummating their marriage. Okay. And when the consummation was complete, the best man would basically report back. Like a champagne pop kind of deal? (laughs) It was something. No, it was like, that was like the official of like, okay, like 
it's complete. Huh. Like that, that I, I should, I while you cannot go to a confirm 20, nor deny that. When you go on to a 20 minute, um, you know, rant here in this next little segment, I'll, I'll research this here. So all to right, make sure I'll, not- uh, I'll just keep talking and you figure out a way to safely search that on my church's Wi-Fi without getting flagged. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> uh, so it was Jewish tradition uh, for the the groom to kind of build that upper room off of his parents' house. Uh, and then when they, uh, I don't know if I have this in my notes anywhere, but eventually the couple would, uh, the couple would move out, you know, and get their own place. And then that upper room kind of became this guest room, uh, for people to stay. Uh, but it was not like, we're not building like a King suite here. Like this is, I got to build somewhere for like my wife and I to like, we needed like a bed and maybe some place for some clothes and like not a whole lot else because we like the family community is still important. Like we're not right. like living in here and locking the door and like never coming out. Like we're still like, this is like our room, yep. but we are still living in the house of, of his parents. You got anything yet? Nope. I, right. I, I no, I'm, I'm just gonna leave it go. It's, 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 <laughs> it's deep in there somewhere, but all right. Um, so the other culture piece, and this one is fun because going beyond Jewish culture, uh, we're going to dip into Galilean culture for a second because Jewish, a Jewish culture is obviously like that is the religious uh, group that Jesus was brought up in, uh, but uh, not physically, um, geographically. Yeah, I feel like this would be like if we assumed all of the U.S. was was Christian, which right. It is not. <laughs> it is not. But like obviously culture up here in Minnesota, when you're sitting down for family time might be different than when you're in Southern Louisiana or what have you. Like right. Just Absolutely. And cultures. so, you know, Galilee was the, the geographical region that they lived in. Correct. In Galilean culture, it was strictly, strictly, strictly prohibited for a couple living to to be living together before they were married. Mm-hmm. Like it just did not happen. And so when you read the account of Jesus's birth, it's and and you know going through what we've talked about so far, it's pretty clear that Mary and Joseph were living together at the time of Jesus's birth. Therefore, we can conclude that Mary and Joseph got married and were likely living in the upper room of Jesus of Joseph's parents house in that 9 month period like remember yeah. they were engaged like right. engagements you know they 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 don't last like 5 10 years right uh you know they they get engaged and then at some point during that engagement Mary is pregnant and then at some point between Mary getting pregnant and Jesus get, being born, there is a wedding and they are now living in Bethlehem uh, at Joseph's parents' house. Yep. And so in, and, and the other thing you have to think about then, like I mentioned, this, this upper room was not designed to be this huge spacious room in four BC to, you know, roughly four BC when Jesus was born, which side note, I find it hilarious that whoever made the modern calendar was like, oh, like I'm a Christian, like we're going to put Jesus's birth at zero. And then, you know, you have everything before him was BC and then everything after him was, was after he was born. And we're going to make Jesus's birth the central mark on that calendar. And they missed. Yes, they (laughs) did. (laughs) Oh, they missed. I, that's just, that's hilarious to me. It's bad. But anyways, uh, so does that, like, can I start talking about, like, you know, we live in 20, we're about to go into 2027 instead of 2023. <laughs> if, if, we slide if, it if back metric, four years. Yeah. Uh, anyways. Uh, does that mean we're all four years older then? Uh, interesting. No, because like, I'm, you know, it's still relative to when I was born. It just, I was born in 1998 instead of 1994. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I see what you're saying. Yep. So in four BC, Right, the most critical part of the pregnancy was the birth, which you could probably still say is true today. Uh, yeah, uh, but they did not have modern medical technology, so there's a lot more that could go wrong at birth in 4 BC <laughs> than can yeah. go wrong today. Yeah, and so there's many hands that are required 
to help facilitate that process. I already said the upper room was not meant to be a really big space. And so like that upper room simply wasn't big enough for everyone needed to be present at the birth. Does that make sense? Yep. hundred percent. All right. We're coming down the home stretch of this, uh, this whole birth story. It brings up kind of one final question on it here, which is what about the whole like manger barn animal thing? Because that is a very big part of every single nativity scene. Many archaeological finds have confirmed that first century families often kept their animals in their homes. Like they they were a part of the family. They they viewed their animals first of all like we're not talking about, you know, mass produced crap where no. like this one family owns 20,000 cows. No. Uh, but their, their animals were very much a part of the family and they were cherished and they were loved like family. And so they were also their income. I mean, this, right. is, this was a day and age when you don't go to work and have a paycheck. Like your income is on the, yeah, I have this cow I get milk from and I yeah. trade it for wool to make clothes or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Homes in the hill countries of this region, such as Nazareth or Bethlehem, often used natural caves as like a back room Mm -hmm. because like, why wouldn't you? It's like a bonus room. You don't have to spend money to build, right? Right. Like it just, boom, there's already a cave here. Like that's already a room that I have. Awesome. And so homes were commonly constructed around these caves and then animals were kept in those caves. But like there was often like just like a stone wall, uh, two things, either a, there was like a stone wall that like, you know, maybe a couple feet high that would act as a barrier between where the animals were and like where the dining table was. Mm -hmm. Cause like, we don't need, you know, (laughs) little pet sheep burning his tail on the fire that I'm boiling this water over. And animals are nasty. So parasites and germs Um, are a thing. Yeah. The other, the other one you commonly saw was almost a tiered system. So like you had like that upper room, right. And then there's like a step down or maybe a whole level down to where like there's like a kitchen area and a dining area and then uh there was like a step down to where the animals were kept yep. and so the you saw both of those constructions uh in this period but um so when mary and joseph like when mary's giving birth and they have to move out of the upper room the larger room where the animals were kept was the next best option of that house. And you might be asking like, okay, well, there's like where the animals were and there's where the dining room was. Wouldn't it make more sense, cleanliness-wise, as Derek mentioned, to go to like the dining room of the house? Right. And the answer is yes. You know, to us, that does absolutely make sense. However, uh, one thing, uh, going deep into Jewish... uh, ceremonial law uh when a birth happens in a home oh well when a birth birth happens happens anywhere yeah Yeah. uh when a birth happens the mother becomes ceremonially unclean for a minimum of seven days uh anything that the blood touches also becomes unclean and ritual purity was incredibly important in jewish culture this is why when you talk about coming back to the good Samaritan, when he's on the side of yeah. the he's on the side of the road, the reason why all these guys walk past is because you'll notice they're Levitical priests. So they're people who need to be ceremonial ceremonially clean. And so they didn't want to touch this person because doing so would disqualify them from their service. It'd be a great, not permanently, but it'd be a great inconvenience temporarily to what they had to do. And that inconvenience was not worth it to them to help out this individual. That's absolutely right. Uh, And so when you, when you think about, uh, you know, a birth happened, like Mary giving birth in this house, like who would want their entire house to be ceremonially unclean because their daughter-in-law gave birth in the living room for a period of time. Uh Now, the other thing that's kind of interesting here is that, and I don't know 
how we got how the Jews got to this point. I think some of what I'm about to say falls more under judicial law or Jewish law yep. and less under biblical law. Yep, I agree. Uh, if if people understand the difference there. Uh some things like wood were conductors of uncleanliness. Kind of like if you kind of think about it like electricity, uh you know, if if I uh, you know, if, if that blood touched the wood, now the wood is unclean, mm-hmm. but there were other, uh, you know, other building materials, other things like stone, for example, that was not a conductor. And so, for example, if Mary gives birth in the stone cave, the rest of the wooden house is still ceremonious, ceremonially clean. Yeah. Uh, and so it's kind of this weird uh, you know, this weird thing, but if she gives birth over here, she's, you know, the rest of the house remains ceremonially clean. Uh, and then to bring it all together, remember that wood wall that I mentioned separating the animals from the, uh, from the rest of the house, whether that was like a two foot tall wood wall or there was like just a step down. Yeah. Either way, the top of that, was it it was like a little bit of a deep enough wall to make a little indent in the top of it that's where the animals fed out of like the the quote unquote manger was this stone piece barrier yep. that would separate the animals from everything else and the and the straw would be placed in that yeah. and so all of this to say you know a lot of times we see you know, the traditional Christmas story as, uh, you know, this is like, oh, you know, Luke is contrasting like a birth for Jesus in a palace. No, he was born in this lowly place. Right. Uh, you know, there is still, uh, for lack of a better word, there's still shame Mm -hmm. in this story, you know, for, you know, like, Hey, they're, they've got to, you know, make some different accommodations because, uh, you know, this, uh, she got pregnant before they were married. Like that brought some, there were some, probably some other things that happened to them, not recorded in the Bible because of that, uh, that made life a little bit difficult, but it would not have like this, what we just established, like as, as a more accurate Christmas story of Jesus's birth, that would not have been unordinary. Uh, that sequence of events would not have been unordinary at all. Uh, in fact, it would have been incredibly ordinary. And that's mm-hmm. the point that Luke is making. Yeah. That Jesus's birth was ordinary. And I feel like for some people that takes some of the magic away. You know, I think for, I don't know if you had this experience, but when we were, when we were in Israel, they took us to this site or at least a close site to where David and Goliath probably took place with where it technically falls with the current political climate. You can't go to the spot because I believe it falls in Syria or Jordan and you you just don't want to go there right now. It's not super, <laughs> super open. Um, and so, but um, what happened and I'm going to kind of go off, you know, script here for a little bit, but you'll see why what our professor explained to us is how, Goliath wasn't as big as we think he wasn't maybe nine or 10 feet tall. Like he was probably just taller and buffer than your average guy. And when they talk about a sling and a stone, we're not talking about gravel from your driveway. We're talking about like a softball sized, like boulder that was flying towards his head. Yeah. Like baseball, softball kind of thing. Right. Like, 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 like more logic and like to, to be skilled with a sling was like an actual like gift and a, and a, and a, and a talent. And so, you know, it, a lot of times it feels like this impossible feat where this little boy is going up against this guy who's five feet taller than him with just little, ro- you know, a little wrist rocket and some pebbles. And it's like, <laughs> that's kind of the narrative that we preach when in reality, it was much more of an even fight than maybe um, it initially has been told in the Western world. And so when I re- when I first heard that, it almost was like a, it almost looked like there was like less magic there, right? Like, yeah. like, like, like less of a miraculous power. But the more I've kind of come around that, the more I've realized 
That's what God does though, is he uses natural things supernaturally. And so like when I, when we read, you know, this story through this lens, it was ordinary, but it didn't change the fact that God used something ordinary to change the world. And I feel like that's kind of the point here is like God is so intentional about what he's doing that he's going to make sure. Cause like you are right. I mean, Look about how much wrong goes now when or could go wrong when you are having a baby. Like we have we have no modern medicine, we have no antibiotics when Jesus is born. We have, you know, no uh, no other gifts that we have now um when we bring a child into the world. So like everything had to be well thought out, well thought out if, you know, Jesus was going to make it in out of out of birth and everything like that. So Yeah, th- uh real quick, this is not First of all, I love what you said. Uh, this is not a David and Goliath episode, but I'm going to quiz you here because there's a, there's a nugget in the David and Goliath story yep. that almost nobody puts together. Uh, so you mentioned, you know, Goliath, <laughs> maybe not like, maybe not, you know, nine or 10 feet tall. Yep. Uh, do you have, did they ever go over or, or have you ever looked at like how tall he may have been? I want to say like six or seven, yeah, like, like, like six, seven. Yeah. I uh, love that. So do you remember which tribe of Israel was like the warrior tribe? Oh gosh. Um, and the sword fighters. Benjamin. Yes. Benjamin. Uh, who in Israel in this time is a six or seven feet tall. It should have been Saul B a warrior from the tribe of Benjamin and C in a position to take on Goliath. <laughs> the one who was wet in his pants in his palace. A hundred percent. Saul was destined yep. called by God to fight Goliath yep. and he chickened out. And then David who like, People need to realize, again, not what this podcast is about, but the slingshotters mm-hmm. of this army, like they could not, they could probably rival Derek's bird hunting skill. Like <laughs> they could knock a bird out of the air with their huh? stone. They could hit a lion between the eyes from a hundred yards away. Yep. I'm not exaggerating when I say that. Let me slow down yep. and say that again. They could hit a lion between the eyes from a hundred yards away. Away, yep. they have to be able to protect the other side of their flock. Yep, without having to sprint all the way over there. David brought a gun to a knife fight. Yes, he did. Like my favorite part about the story of David versus Goliath is that David was favored to win. Yep, and which which goes against all modern sports stories. Yep. Oh, oh David yeah. versus Goliath. Uh, you know this massive. Uh, you know, sports icon versus this lowly nobody team. Well, David was favored to win. People just don't know how to read the story. Correct. Uh, or more accurately, they've been told a slightly different version of the story. See, and, and see, again, like when I heard that for the first time, it almost was like, oh man. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, like, like there's, there's less of a wonder or an enamor with that, but it, it, what I have kind of reasoned is the fact that like th- that, but that's the point. Like, like God yep. uses your gifts to accomplish amazing things. David so- does not defeat Goliath. If he hasn't spent 15 years in the field with the sheep, sharpening that tool yep. and that gift of his before that moment. Right. Um, okay. There's two last things that I want to talk about uh, with this story. The first one is that the wise men were not there right away. Yep. Uh, but also it may not have been as late as a lot of people have now believed. Uh, you know, original, like every Christmas play, probably just for the sake of like the picture, they put like the shepherds and the wise men with baby Jesus yep. in the manger all at once. It's one nice pretty picture. And they walk up as Mary is holding Jesus. and Right, know. exactly. Yeah. Uh, According to Jewish law, Mary was ceremonially unclean for 40 days. Uh which like you don't want you don't need to be getting visitors when you're ceremonially unclean. Now, nope. shepherds, a little bit of a different story, partially because they were also not necessarily the most ceremonially clean on a regular sure. basis. 
Uh, however, uh, and I will point out here too, circumcision uh, happened on the eighth day. That's an exception. Okay. Uh, yep. You know, like we can go and do that and then go back to being unclean. I don't really know how all of that worked, but uh, that's fine. Um, Mary and Joseph at Jesus's circumcision, uh, they, you know what? We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but, uh, recently a lot of people have come to believe that, uh, the, the wise men arrived. First of all, there were, we don't know how many wise men there were. I didn't mm-hmm. put this in the show docs, but I we just don't preach know. about this last week. Yeah, there, so were three, there were three gifts, mm-hmm. but we don't necessarily know how many wise Correct. men there were. They were also from the East. So, you know, we don't know where from the East though. Sure. You know, so like. I, I looked and studied. Can this they be for a like while. Chinese? That would be awesome. That would be super <laughs> awesome. But like, like what I never put two and two together is I, I was studying this pretty in depth for my sermon this you know last week, and a lot of the leading experts like think that they traveled hundreds or thousands of miles to get to Jerusalem. So yeah. you know, even if they did leave, you know, because let me jump in here really quick. So in Numbers chapter twenty four. They talk about how when the Messiah is to be born, there will be a star in the sky. That's what they were following. They were following the star to know that the the Messiah was born, and that's what led them to Jerusalem. But it takes a while. Like when you're thousands of miles away yep. and you don't have a Tesla in four <laughs> BC, it takes a little while to get that far. And so that's why when we talk about two years old here in a little bit, it just took time for them to get all the way over there um, in order to meet baby Jesus. Yeah. So it took some time. They definitely weren't there right away. And I'll get into a little bit more, a little bit later, some more evidence as to why they definitely didn't get there before Jesus's circumcision. But uh, a lot of people will say, oh, they got there when Jesus was two. And they get this from Herod, ordering all of the boys under two, two and under to yep. be killed, which, uh, first of all, you know, the, Psycho. there's two <laughs> things that you learn. If you study Herod, there's two things you get from this. Number one, this is probably a hundred percent a true story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no, uh, evidence outside of the Bible to support this slaughter of two year olds by Herod in Bethlehem. Uh, and so a lot of people will point to that as like kind of a hole in the plot line of Jesus's birth. However, Herod was uh, just an absolutely terrible human being mm-hmm. um, to the point. Now, again, this is Bethlehem is what? Maybe four or 500 people. So we're talking at a maximum, maybe, you know, 12 20 is the number I looked up. 12 to 20 so I, I kids was preaching murdered. King Herod last week. Right. Like, so like that, yeah. Okay, so, so 20 was the number. Herod kills with. 20 mm-hmm. boys ages two or under. Mm-hmm. That would not even crack the top 10 of the most inhumane things Herod did. Mm-hmm. So if I am a historian writing about Herod, I probably won't mention this because there's so many other, like, first of all, I'm not going to just go down murderer's row, pun intended, of all the terrible things Herod did. I'm not like trying to make like a top 100 list. If I am trying to illustrate how terrible Herod is, and I'm going to give a couple examples, this one's not going to be on the list because there were other things he did that were so much worse. Killed his wife, killed his sons. <laughs> just I, I, I again murderer's row was yeah, pun intended uh-huh. like the dude just murdered and the irony of the whole thing do you know what his official name is known as Herod the Great Herod the Great <laughs> yep you have to wonder if that's like a self-appointed kind of like Moses oh, it's gotta be Moses calling himself humble like how do you how does one get the title the great because you had Alexander the Great yeah you have Herod the Great I think there was like an Ivan the Great uh, yeah, if I remember right. correctly, right. uh, like how do you get the great on your uh, on your tombstone? I, I got to look into that. Maybe you just pay whoever makes the tombstones and you can <laughs> have whatever you want put on there. Uh, but here's the other thing that you learn. Okay, you study Herod. This story is probably 100% true. There's a very high likelihood that this is definitely within Herod's character yep. to do this. Uh, 
And again, Derek mentioned Herod murdering like his own children because yep. he was threatened that they would turn on him, take his throne away from him. Yep. So when the wise men come and say, oh, there's this king born in Bethlehem, Herod's like, no, there's not, <laughs> not anymore. Uh, the other thing we learned from Herod is that if Herod thought that Jesus was two years old at the time, he would have murdered everybody under five. Like Herod would have made absolutely sure, sure he murdered Jesus. Yep. And so when Herod says two and under, there's no doubt in Herod's mind that he is covering yeah. killing Jesus. Right. So that leads me, like this is not in the Bible, obviously, but that all of this together leads me to believe that Jesus was probably one or one and a half yep. when the Israelites, or the Israelites, when the uh, wise men got to Bethlehem. Well, and he, but he gave this order after he found out the Magi outwitted him. True. So you read that the Magi outwitted him and then he gives the decree. So, and we, yeah, we don't know, yo, he gave the decree like, okay, you guys go find him and then yep. report back to me. Yep. And so we don't know how long of a time period that was Correct. before Herod actually said, okay, go and kill all these kids. Which gives credence to the fact that he was definitely under two because he had given time for the wise men to get to Jerusalem, go and find, not report back. Like that, all that takes time. To, to be fair, like Jerusalem and Bethlehem were not that. No, I think it was close. like, what, 12 miles yeah, or something? Really like that. So it's, they're not too far apart. But, you know, he, you know, Herod could probably, you know, give them like maybe they stay with him, you know, a week or two before yep. they come back and tell me. So that's three weeks. Yeah. Uh potentially since the last time I saw that. Yo, know, so like he could and then he takes another week deciding what he wants to do with the situation, you know. But it's anyways. Uh the last thing that I want to say here is uh that Mary and Joseph were poor at the start, but also not really. Uh, and what I mean by that is when, when you read about Jesus's circumcision, uh, it says that Mary and Joseph brought a pair of doves or two young pigeons as the sacrifice at Jesus's circumcision. Like, in, uh, I don't remember exactly where it is in the Old Testament, somewhere in the first five books, but it lays out all the rules and stuff for this. A pair of doves or two young pigeons was the poor sacrifice if you could not afford a lamb. Yep. If the wise men had gotten to Mary and Joseph before Jesus was circumcised, they had a bunch of gold to go buy a lamb and give that as the sacrifice. Yep. And so uh, that points to the... The wise men, again, not getting there until after Jesus' circumcision. But then, and this is kind of a cool way to wrap all this up, God provides, along with the frankincense and the myrrh, God provides Mary and Joseph some gold, which financed their fleeing to Egypt. So good. Love it. It's so, I love diving into this. Like we might have to do an episode on David and Goliath because we got really passionate really quick about that. But I love just dive. This is what happens when you really dive into not just the words of the Bible, but the world of the Bible. That's a, that's a Mark Turnage quote right there. But I would highly encourage you guys dive into some of this stuff. Uh, you know, it is a great way to really bring to life the words of the Bible, uh, to really, really bring more depth to your faith. And then the other thing that I think I'll speak for Derek on this, we absolutely want to see some of our listeners get thrown out of church productions of kids doing the Christmas story because you were throwing tomatoes and booing the writers for getting it wrong. Yeah, I'm, I'm so in support of that. I'm fairly certain based on the amount of texts I've seen on my phone in the last five minutes that our kids pastor in his office right next door is listening to us record this episode. Oh man. And so I'm really encouraged that, uh, cause this episode releases Thursday. The next Sunday is when our church is doing our kids Christmas program. So I'm hoping for some small minor adjustments, uh, on, uh, on his part. You know what? I think uh, 
I need to talk quietly so he can't hear me. Is it? So <laughs> I You're think, probably good. I think you need to uh, come prepared to uh, to correct him in the middle of the production. Like, get up. No, no, no. This is all way wrong. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> so, okay. We need to ask our listeners this question. Because as much as I want to do this, and I love that we're dropping our voices so he can't overhear us. <laughs> This is also the same kid's pastor who like puts things in the window of your door to try to distract us while we're recording. That is true. He was doing that over your shoulder earlier, by the way. Okay, perfect. But it feels wrong to throw tomatoes at small children. Yeah. Like, is it okay for them to be collateral damage or do I just have to hit our kid's pastor with the tomatoes? Just get a paintball gun and be more accurate. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I feel like there's like some security team members that would not uh, take too kindly to me using a paintball gun in our sanctuary. Also, I don't know that under pressure I could be that accurate. Uh, it's very difficult to be accurate the paintball gun. I'm more so excited for your kid's pastor to be listening back to this and hear you say, boinking it out for a year. Oh, you are <laughs> greatly overestimating my kid's pastor if you think he's going to go back and listen to this whole episode. Uh, not because he's not smart, but just because I don't think he cares about me that much. I don't think, I just, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Scott, if you're listening to this, uh, he's <laughs> he's clearly listening. <laughs> there he is in the window again. Uh, Scott, if you're listening to this, just come and tell me the word radish. Uh, that'll let me know that you made it this far into the podcast. All right. Uh, that does it for today's episode. Uh, on behalf of Derek, I hope that we, the other thing I will mention real quick, we wanted to release this episode at the beginning of December so that all of our youth pastor friends can go and preach the correct version of this story and ruin Christmas for all of your middle schoolers and high schoolers. Or at least have to sit through a Christmas Eve service knowing how wrong it is. Absolutely. Uh, please feel free to email all of your senior pastors the next morning, that Monday morning. Uh, correcting them. Uh, But thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. On behalf of Derek, I think it's about time that I go buy some tomatoes. Goodbye. Goodbye.